Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8001. Welcome to the 1980s. The week of December 30th, 1979. Welcome to Retrogram, the podcast that picks a week between 1970 and 1990, gives all of that week's sci-fi, superhero, fantasy, and horror shows a fresh watch, and tries to find out if those shows have anything, anything at all, to say to us today. And in this retrogram, we're right in the middle, right in the middle of 1970 and 1990, looking at the shows that aired during the first week of 1980. The 70s seemed to start in crisis with Vietnam and Watergate and oil embargoes and gasoline rationing. They seemed to end in crisis, too, somewhere between hostages in Iran, Three Mile Island, and the Cold War continuing to loom over it all. Wasn't it about time to come out from under that cloud? Surely the 1980s would be better. Maybe we could all just chill out and play Atari today, or something. Now, nearly 40 years after the turn of this particular decade, we know things didn't necessarily get better. But if you were a kid with a taste for the fantastic at the time, there was at least quite a bit to watch on TV. Welcome to the week of December 30th, 1979. Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Season 1, Episode 12, Space Vampire, aired Thursday, January 3rd, 1980, on NBC. The story so far. In 1987, NASA launches the last American deep space mission, Ranger 1, crewed by one Captain William Buck Rogers. Now, it could be that one of the reasons this is the last deep space mission is because something goes terribly wrong, putting Ranger 1 and Buck into an orbit beyond the reach of Earth and beyond help. He's frozen, but not dead, and he is revived when Ranger 1 loops back to Earth in its accidentally wide orbit. Just one problem for Buck, it's now the year 2491. Everything and everyone he knew is dead. After an encounter with Princess Ardala and her people, the Draconians, Buck ends up on Earth itself at the headquarters of the Earth Defense Directorate in New Chicago. Much of the planet has been laid to waste by war and environmental disaster, leaving the populations of outlying areas in a zombie-like state and confining civilization to major megacities like New Chicago. A walking, wisecracking robot, or ambuquad, named Tweaky, is assigned to help Buck acclimate to his new surroundings, and Tweaky often carries the supercomputer known as Dr. Theopolis with him, a member of the Earth Directorate's ruling council. Buck also befriends the wise Dr. Hewer and Colonel Wilma Deering, tough as nails, but not unsympathetic to Buck's unusual fate. And with all of the threats that Earth faces, 
they'll need a 20th century rocket jockey on their side in the 25th century. Space Vampire Buck and Wilma are giving a new spacecraft a test drive. You know, kicking the tires, lighting the fires, and all of that. It's bigger than the usual starfighters they fly, and maybe a bit more luxurious, but they're still traveling on business to Theta Station. Tweaky had hoped to visit the planet Genesia to hang out with his old frenemy, Hieronymus Fox, but that's just not in the cards for this trip. We can only afford Gary Coleman so many times in one season. And Tweaky is due for a tune-up anyway, and that's why the trip is being made. On Station Theta, it's a slightly awkward reunion with Commander Royko. He and Wilma go... way back. He's a little bewildered by Buck, and even more bewildered when he learns that Buck has filled Tweaky's memory with all sorts of useful 20th century phrases, like, Gimme five, cool daddy. Outside the station, a derelict spacecraft barrels out of the Stargate on a collision course with Station Theta. There isn't enough time to do anything about it. Parts of the station are evacuated just in time before the derelict ship punches right through the hull. The station's advanced 25th century technology is preventing the air from escaping into the vacuum of space. Yay! But it can't stop the air from the derelict from mixing in with the station's air supply. Commander Royko drafts Buck and Wilma into helping out with the damage assessment. A floaty, glowing red thing pops out of the derelict and into the station, unnoticed by the damage control team. There's a chill in the air, too. That goes unnoticed as well, by everyone except Colonel Wilma Deering. Aboard the space freighter, several bodies are found, but the really bad news is that most of them were already in the ship's sickbay. It's just possible that some kind of plague has gotten loose on Theta Station. Commander Royko declares quarantine, meaning Buck and Wilma are stranded. The captain's log is found, containing mentions of a passenger dying in his quarters, followed by members of the crew, hallucinating crew members and inexplicable power shortages. By the time the ship reached the Stargate, the ship was on autopilot. The captain's final log entry shows her cowering in fear from something that is never seen by the ship's camera. Dr. Ekbar, Station Theta's chief medical officer, suspects it might be a deadly virus called EL-7, whose symptoms include hallucinations. Since it's more likely to be that than EL-fudge, some tests will have to be run, but let's assume the worst for the moment. Oh, and Ekbar has something that'll counteract EL-7, but he doesn't have enough for everyone. Royko goes to call Earth for backup. Tweaky goes to try and repair a dead robot that was found in the crew quarters. Wilma goes to get something to eat, and Buck goes for more information. He thinks Dr. Ekbar is holding something back. And what do you know? He is. Those bodies from the freighter? They're not dead, but also not quite alive, drained of all life energy. And there are weird marks, almost like burns, in two places on the neck of each body. Buck intuitively makes the leap to the legend of vampires on ancient Earth. And that doesn't really impress Dr. Ekbar. Meanwhile on Earth, Dr. Hewer can't keep a houseplant alive. Buck and Wilma report in on the Theta Station quarantine crisis. Buck has discovered the identity of the passenger who was the first death aboard the freighter, one William Helson of New London. Might be significant, and he needs Hewer to look it up. Back on Theta Station, in the space bar, which is sort of like a bar, in space, Buck is trying to cheer Wilma up, and she is seriously spooked. She seems to be catching a constant chill. Buck goes to get her something, and that's when Wilma finally spots the floaty red thing as it settles into an empty seat across the room, and it turns into a dude, a kind of pointy-eared, pale-skinned space dude 
with glowing red eyes and some really bad fingernails. She looks again, and he's gone. Okay, so it sounds like she's having hallucinations. Uh, when can we expect the convulsions and death to happen? In sick bay, Dr. Ekbar has a visitor. It's that floaty red thing that turns into a dude, and now it's the pointy-eared, pale-skinned space dude. And now all of the lifeless bodies are rising from their comatose state. One of them grabs Ekbar and holds him still. Bye, Doc. But before he met whatever fate he met, Ekbar summoned Commander Royko to the sickbay. Royko stops by the space bar and asks Buck and Wilma to join him in the sickbay. The bodies, by the time they arrive, have all resumed being comatose, and now there's a new body. It's Dr. Ekbar. Buck thinks he was attacked, but Royko thinks Buck is a crazy, superstitious throwback. You know, Dr. Ekbar did tell me about your vampire comment, and that's just nuts. This has got to be a disease. Wilma is still feeling a chill in the room, a presence, and then it's gone. Meanwhile, on Earth, Dr. Hewer still has a dead houseplant and some information. Helson was an agricultural worker who suddenly became a bounty hunter after something killed his wife and his only child. Helson's log entries give his target a name, the Vorvan, which is, thankfully, a lot fewer syllables than saying pointy-eared, pale-skinned space dude with glowing red eyes and some really bad fingernails. Good news, Tweaky has fixed Helson's robot. It contains a video log of Helson's final moments, and there's Helson talking to himself or acting like he's talking to someone else, and then being thrown around the room by something that just doesn't show up on the tape. A couple of minutes of rather impressive stunt work follow, and Helson's dead, murdered. I think we just ruled out EL-7. Buck wonders if this was the work of the Vorvan, and he thought he saw Helson trying to ward it off with something. Buck goes to the wrecked space freighter to see if he can find it, and there it is, some sort of mirror artifact. That's when Buck gets jumped by Dr. Ekbar? What? He fights Ekbar off, and Ekbar goes back to looking kind of like the corpse that he is. When Buck runs out of the freighter, the other seemingly dead bodies are waiting in ambush. And there's the Vorvan. It finally says something. Buck is an obstacle to it getting something it wants. The Vorvan extends its index finger and pinky and walks toward Buck slowly, just long enough for Buck to work out that the distance between those fingers with their really icky fingernails is about the distance between those burn-like marks on the necks of all the lifeless bodies. Buck still has the artifact, and when he slaps the Vorvan's hand with it, the creature screams and retreats, ordering its zombie-like minions to attack. Buck sets off the security alarm, but he's taken a beating. He comes to in the sickbay. Royko and Wilma are there. So are all the bodies, including Ekbar. He tries to explain what happened, and Royko dismisses his claims as more superstition. You know, Buck, these kind of hallucinations are pretty common with EL-7. Buck can prove it, though. Let's watch the last video recorded by Helson's robot. Oh, well, someone's burned that mother to the ground, and with it the evidence. Buck still has the artifact, though, the only thing that's proven effective in fighting off the Vorvon, and he leaves Wilma in sickbay to go and make another call to Dr. Hewer and his houseplant. Dr. Hewer and Dr. Theopolis, with absolutely no help from the houseplant, have done some more digging in the archives. The Vorvan is a legend of an undead being that drains the living soul from its victims. Kind of far-fetched, in Dr. Hewer's opinion. Now Buck's not so sure that he wasn't right on the money with his vampire theory. Is there any other information? Well, there's this. 
The shiny artifact might stun a Vorvon momentarily, but only a massive power overload will kill it, at least according to the legends. Buck goes back to the ship that he and Wilma arrived in and gets to work. Meanwhile, in the space bar, the Vorvon appears to Wilma again. Tweaky doesn't see it. Nobody does. Just Wilma. And again, the Vorvon's getting rather talkative. I've come for you. I want you. I'll kill them all to get you. Wilma starts talking back to it, which just kind of makes her look crazy to everyone else in the bar. She takes off running. The Vorvon calmly follows. It seems to be able to catch up with her despite not being in too big a hurry. With a flash of the Vorvon's red eyes, Wilma is hypnotized, but she snaps out of it just in time and escapes, calling for Buck, Royko, anyone who can help. Just as the Vorvon has her cornered again, Buck shoots it. And that's when Royko arrives, security squad in tow, and hey, there's Buck drawing a gun on nothing. The Vorvon's gone. Obviously, Royko says... This is just another hallucination caused by EL-7, and Buck will have to be confined because he's a danger to himself and others. The same goes for Wilma. Well, that's just great. She's going to be caged, a sitting duck. And sure enough, the Vorvon is back. Wilma surrenders on the condition that it won't hurt anyone else on the station. In the brig, Buck has a visitor. Oh, hey, Wilma. But she's not herself. She says she drained the life essence of the guards, and she's here now for Buck. Oh, and she likes the taste of fear. Buck manages to zing her with the artifact, and she pushes past him and rejoins her new best buddy, the Vorvon. He's making plans. He and Wilma will be leaving Theta Station now to find new worlds to plunder. That's okay. Buck follows the shuttle in a fighter because he set the shuttle on an autopilot course for the nearest sun. Wilma is released from the Vorvon's grip, and the Vorvon starts to fry in his own fat. Wilma escapes, the Vorvon's victims are restored when the Vorvon dies, and back on Earth, Buck is pretty sure Dr. Hewer let his houseplant die while he was gone. Oh, hey, I just got it! Helson? Van Helsing! I get it! Do I get an EL fudge for that? Or are we still blaming everything on EL-7? The End Okay, for those of you who don't know, I'm over on YouTube every other day, dropping a new little piece on a classic arcade game or a classic computer or console game of some sort. It's a little series called Phosphor Dot Fossils, and it kind of has its own following apart from Retrogram. And so, with that in mind, you will understand why I homed in on this. There are two vintage arcade games in Theta Station's spacebar. You've got what looks like a painted-over machine with a clearly identifiable midway coin door, but... Any knowledge dating back to the 20th century is somehow obscure lost information? How does that work? Now, this might also explain Tweaky's quip that he has had conversations with a Roto-Rooter. If a couple of arcade games of a 1979 vintage at the latest have survived, then there may very well be a Roto-Rooter somewhere in the archives, too. In hindsight, it's really funny how everyone keeps treating Buck like he is the only thing that survived the end of the 20th century. Now, a little note for the art department, a hangar, as in a place where aircraft and spacecraft are birthed, that's H-A-N-G-A-R. Hangar with an E is something you hang your clothes on. Now, this is where four centuries of text messaging and autocorrect gets us, people. I doubt there's ever been a sci-fi show's art department that ever got enough sleep, so I'm just going to chalk this bit of misspelled futuristic signage up to that. 
You gotta love the way this really obvious garden variety TV set is built into the dashboard of Buck and Wilma's ship that they are flying at the beginning of this episode. By the way, if that ship looked familiar, the model was reused from the pilot episode where it had appeared as Princess Ardala's shuttle. It's probably the Ford Explorer of the 25th century. Anyone can buy one off the lot, and so there are a lot of them around. There is some nicer-than-usual model work in this episode. The freighter colliding with Theta Station would have been improved if there had been a sound effects mix a bit more evocative of metal punching through metal. Instead, it just kind of sounds like a creaky boat, and that undersells it. It's, it's an odd choice, and again, I'm going to assume that we just ran out of time to get that sound mix right. The stage separation of Wilma's ship at the end of the episode is neat, and you can tell that they were trying to evoke some of the stage separation views from onboard cameras on the Apollo missions. You have to keep in mind that at the time this episode aired, Space Shuttle Columbia hadn't flown yet, and so Apollo was still the most recent crewed space vehicle in the United States space program when this was filmed in 1979. The energy surrounding the Vorvan as it plunges to its doom in the star reminded me a lot of some other late 1979 effects work, namely some of the effects in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Special photographic effects are credited to Universal Heartland, short for Universal Studios Heartland Visual Effects Facility, so named because it was headquartered on Heartland Street in North Hollywood. Former Universal Heartland model maker Ken Larson runs a neat website to commemorate the accomplishments of himself and his fellow visual effects underdogs who are trying to do really cool optical effects minus an ILM budget. They were responsible for effects on Buck Rogers, Battlestar Galactica, Dino De Laurentiis' Flash Gordon movie, numerous NASA films, and some of the effects in the Carl Sagan series Cosmos. He also did effects for The Thing, effects work for the Horizon Pavilion at Disney's Epcot Center, and, wait for it, Cheech and Chong's next movie. So, nothing to do with the similar animated effects on the first Star Trek flick, because obviously a different effects house, but evidently it was just a technique that was making the rounds at the time. It's still a very distinctive look. You can visit Ken Larson's site at universalheartland.com, and there's a great quote from that site. In the eyes of Universal, we were either an irritating bunch of know-it-alls or an expensive country club, depending on our achievements of the moment. Universal Heartland definitely earned their keep on this episode of Buck Rogers. This episode was written by Kathleen Barnes and David Wise. Both of them teamed up for scripts on The Secret of Isis, Space Sentinels, The Animated Tarzan, the live-action Wonder Woman, and the Godzilla animated series in 1979. Kathleen went on to become the story editor of another animated show, Space Stars, while David went on to write scripts for The Biscuits, Mighty Orbots, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Transformers, Jim and the Holograms, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, Batman the Animated Series, the Mighty Ducks, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. David also wrote the episode How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth for the early 70s animated Star Trek, so chances are pretty good we will encounter Kathleen Barnes and David Wise elsewhere in our retrogram travels. The episode was directed by Larry Stewart. Larry was an actor and director. In front of the camera, he was one of Captain Video's video rangers, but he also made guest appearances on The A-Team and Moonlighting. 
Behind the camera, Larry directed episodes of The Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk, The Amazing Spider-Man, Charlie's Angels, Here's Boomer, and this was the first of four episodes of Buck Rogers he directed. He was a multiple Emmy winner for some of his documentary work. We lost Larry Stewart in 1997. The supervising producer on Buck Rogers during the first season was Bruce Lansbury. Bruce can lay as much claim to the title of Buck Rogers' showrunner as Glenn Larson can, and maybe more. The British-born writer-producer had been a producer on The Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, The Fantastic Journey, and Wonder Woman, and still ahead of him were stints as producer of Street Hawk, Knight Rider, and Murder, She Wrote. As a writer, he was the creator of the early 70s Bill Bixby series The Magician, and he wrote episodes of The Powers of Matthew Starr and the first season finale of Buck Rogers under a pen name. Bruce Lansbury died in 2017. Now, among our guest stars for this exciting, action-packed episode of Buck Rogers are Patty Maloney as Tweaky. Now, usually Felix Silla was the guy in the Tweaky suit, but Patty Maloney filled in for this and one other episode, and she had played a female version of Tweaky in an episode in 1979. She had already played the part of Honk in Sid and Marty Croft's Far Out Space Nuts, and in 1978 she wore Wookiee fur to play the part of Lumpy, Chewie's dad, in the Star Wars Holiday Special. Christopher Stone guest stars as Commander Royko. He had already had a recurring role in The Bionic Woman, as well as one-off guest shots in Logan's Run and Wonder Woman. This episode of Buck Rogers was the beginning of a one-two punch of primetime sci-fi a la Glenn A. Larson for Chris, whose next gig would be appearing in a two-part story on Galactica 1980. He would go on to appear in Fantasy Island, The Fall Guy, The Blue and the Gray, Manimal, WizKids, Airwolf, a recurring role on Dallas, T.J. Hooker, and a starring role in the new Lassie in the late 80s and early 90s. We lost Christopher Stone far too young. He died in 1995 at the age of 53. Nicholas Horman is the Vorvan. You might not be bracing yourself for this bit of news, but he is quite the renowned stage actor. This was a very early entry in his career, and he would also go on to do guest shots on Dallas, WKRP in Cincinnati, Webster, and The Paper Chase, among many others. Within the sci-fi and fantasy wheelhouse, he also shows up in Misfits of Science, Beauty and the Beast, and The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. So yes, we will eventually be seeing that toothy grin again in other installments of Retrogram. Although maybe not as toothy as he was here, what with being a space vampire and all. Lincoln Kilpatrick was Dr. Ekbar. Now, at the movies, you've seen him in The Omega Man and Soylent Green. While on TV, you saw him in The Six Million Dollar Man, Beretta, The White Shadow, The Greatest American Hero, Matt Houston, Frank's Place, and Gabriel's Fire, among many others. Sadly, Lincoln Kilpatrick is no longer with us. He died in 2004. The music for this episode was composed by Robert Prince. And it seems that where Bruce Lansbury went, composer Robert Prince often followed. He did the music for episodes of Wild Wild West, The Fantastic Journey, Land of the Giants, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, Ghost Story, and Circle of Fear, Mission Impossible, The Sixth Sense, Wonder Woman, The Powers of Matthew Starr, and this, his only Buck Rogers contribution. Sadly, Space Vampire is one of the few first-season episodes which is not represented in Entrada Records' lovely and now sold-out box set of soundtracks from the first season of Buck Rogers. 
I have really fond memories of this episode from watching it on its first airing. As goofy as it all seems now, Space Vampire scared the hell out of me when I was seven years old. Which, with all due respect to the writers of the episode, may be more of a testament to the themes and overtones that Bram Stoker built into the Dracula legend. Now, there's a lot of stuff here that completely undermines that creepiness. The Vorvon's smile just kind of lights up a room, doesn't it? It's like he's about to say, hey, how you doing? Aaron Gray's performance as the Vorvon-possessed Wilma toward the end of the episode really comes out swinging for the fences, trying to be scary, but ends up being just silly and maybe just a little bit weirdly hot. What I really want to see is the blooper reel from this episode, because I'm sure the runtime on it would be about as long as the episode itself. Now, where I do think Erin Gray should get a major round of applause is before that, where she's really telegraphing how much of a threat the Vorvon should seem like. On the one hand, it's yet another step on season one's long decline from the pilot movie's kick-ass, no-nonsense Colonel Wilma During to the mid-season damsel in distress Wilma During that Buck was always having to rescue. On the other hand, it's a pretty well-done performance, and let's face it, the whole episode hangs on that performance, because if Aaron Gray hadn't made it seem like the Vorvon was scaring the hell out of Wilma, the rest of this episode would have just collapsed. The Incredible Hulk, Season 3, Episode 12, Broken Image, aired Friday, January 4th, 1980, on CBS. The story so far. Dr. David Bruce Banner, conducting research into enhancing human strength and abilities, subjected himself to a high dose of gamma radiation, a little too high and for a little too long. Now when he is angered, when events around him trigger a fight-or-flight response, Banner transforms into the Incredible Hulk, a gigantic, bemuscled green humanoid with astounding strength and a berserker rage over which Banner has no control. When the crisis ends, the Hulk transforms back into Banner, often passing out in the process. The death of a fellow scientist in an explosion at Banner's lab during the Hulk's first appearances means that Banner is assumed to be dead, and so he assumes fictitious names and stays on the move, trying to stay ahead of persistent newspaper reporter Jack McGee, the only human being who suspects Banner is still alive and suspects he has a connection to the Incredible Hulk. Broken Image A man wakes up, walks into the bathroom, and starts to get ready for his day, and... Hey, is that Banner? No, not unless he's grown a mustache even more disturbing than the $6 million man's mustache. Further clues that this isn't Banner, the bag full of cash, the gun, and the sleeping woman that this guy rudely wakes up and chases out of his bed. The man suits up, ready for work, one presumes, until he looks out the window, just in time to see a car come screeching to a halt just outside. That's his cue to grab his money, his gun, and jump out the window onto the fire escape? When two armed men burst into the door looking for him, you know, I get the feeling that whoever this guy is, he has done this before. Cut to a man pushing a broom. Ah, here we go. David Bruce Banner, the genuine article, working as a janitor. A couple brushes past him and a man swears he knows Banner, but he calls him Mike. Mike Cassidy, right? 
Banner shrugs. He must be mistaken. No harm, no foul. Back to work. But later, the man who thought he recognized Banner is back, and he's brought someone with him. The mustached guy we met before. He thinks that Banner is just what we need. They follow him for a bit at a discreet distance. A call is placed to Lorraine, the woman who was, well, left alone in a big hurry earlier. Mike wants to see you in room 2F in an hour. She agrees, hangs up the phone, but she's not alone. Two men are with her listening in. They're the armed guys who showed up suddenly earlier. And they seem to be eager to meet Mike, too. Lorraine shows up at the door at room 2F right on cue. And this is Banner's apartment. When he opens the door, she just walks right in and starts making out with him. She thinks he's Mike, and she thinks they should take the money and go to South America and start all over. Banner finally fesses up. Um, you've got the wrong guy. But she says she got a phone call from Teddy to come meet him here. She's getting angry. Finally, she leaves. Well, that was odd, but really on a 1 to 10 scale of odd things that have happened to Banner, it's probably only a 3, maybe a 4. The next day, Banner is walking back to his apartment with some groceries, and a police car slows down while its occupants take a good long look at him. Then they turn around in a hurry, hit the lights and sirens, and chase him. Okay, I think we're up to about a six now. Banner barrels through the apartment building and out a back door, and there's Lorraine waiting in a car telling him to get in, now. He's not really in a position to pass up a free ride out of trouble. She drives Banner off to a parking garage, but this time, those guys she's been hanging out with in between spending time with Mike, they're waiting. They also think Banner is Mike, but Banner says his name is David Bowman. Nobody believes him. They think he has their money. They want him to step into their office to have a word. I think we're up to at least an eight at this point. Banner is hauled off, and as he protests that there's been a serious misunderstanding, Lorraine thinks maybe this isn't Mike after all. She's never heard him sound worried before. In the office, the shakedown starts. Pain starts being inflicted on Banner, and he warns his captors that if they hadn't already made a big mistake, they're making an even bigger one now. The arm twisting turns into kidney punches. Lorraine bursts into the office, again telling her friends they've got the wrong guy. It takes all three men to drag her out of the room, leaving Banner alone, but that means they're not there to see him hulk out. The men shove Lorraine into her car and tell her to leave, but about the time a big green guy bursts out of that back office, they suddenly want her to hit the brakes and offer them a ride. The Hulk has other ideas. He yanks an entire guard shack out of the ground and drops it in the car's path. Uh, hey, it's okay. We'll walk. I mean, run for our lives. You can stay here, Lorraine. Bye-bye. The Hulk takes off after them, but loses track of them. Instead, the Hulk makes his way back to Banner's apartment building, scares the bejesus out of one of his neighbors, and shuffles away. With the danger over, he'll be looking for a nice private spot to collapse into a heap and transform back into Banner. Elsewhere, it's Mike Cassidy, and he's shaving his mustache off. Thank goodness. But this has the slight complication of making him David Bruce Banner's exact twin. It's kind of uncanny. He gives Lorraine a call to arrange a meeting with her friends, you know, the ones last seen running for their lives from the Incredible Hulk. He's ready to fork over half the money if they'll leave him alone. The construction site, tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock. I guess that means there's literally only one thing in this city that's under construction. Back in the parking garage, questions are being asked by none other than somewhat obsessive roving reporter Jack McGee, who's been following reports of the Hulk from place to place. Any time there's a report of a big green guy, McGee is there. 
and that brings him to the apartment building where Banner's been staying, where he meets Banner's neighbor, the one who saw the Hulk up close and personal. He's really interested in her story. She's more interested in coming on to McGee. Finally, she offers another helpful tip. Talk to the guy in 2F. He works in the building as the janitor. He sees everyone who comes and goes. If anyone saw where the Hulk went, it's that guy. Banner's packing his stuff and getting ready to leave town. This janitorial gig has just gotten way too complicated. Just as he opens his door, hey, it's roving reporter Jack McGee about to knock on that door. And after two years and change of suspecting that Banner is still alive, McGee now has confirmation. Banner tries to shut the door on him. When McGee won't go away, it's time for Banner to play the same game that someone's been playing with him all day. I'm not Banner. I'm Mike Cassidy. And you are bothering me. Turns out this whole conversation has been overheard by Mike's buddy, Teddy, who breaks into the proceedings. Hey, Mike, is this guy bothering you? That finally messes with McGee's head a bit. He's a little less certain that this is the right man. Banner tells McGee that if he doesn't beat it, his buddy over here will break McGee's legs for him. Yeah, that really doesn't sound like Banner. Sorry for the confusion. If Banner was that mad, he would have just hulked out, right? McGee leaves. Turns out Teddy was here to make Banner, or Bowman, an offer he can't refuse. If you're looking to get out of town, come with me. We'll meet Mike Cassidy, and he'll help you get wherever you want to go. Probably throw in some cash on top. And, hey, if you want that reporter problem uh, fixed, Mike could probably make that happen, too. Banner just wants to get out of town before things get any worse, and under the circumstances, he can't really refuse the offer of help. The next morning, Teddy invites Banner all the way down the hall. He and Mike Cassidy have been hiding out in a nearby apartment. It's like looking into a mirror. Mike apologizes if Banner's had to put up with more trouble than usual because of the close resemblance. Hey, you want to go to a construction site? Banner's in enough of a tight spot that he goes along with it. Mike presses a bunch of hundred-dollar bills into Banner's hand. Sorry for the trouble. And then he and Teddy drive off, leaving Banner there. They park at a discreet distance to watch things unfold. Banner is attacked by the same guys who were beating him up in the parking garage office. And, hey, you've got the money on you. That's great. Well, this whole thing is clearly a setup, and they even have a shallow grave already dug for him. To put it mildly, they're surprised when Banner turns into the Hulk, yanks an exposed girder out from under a building under construction, and drops it on their car as they try to escape. It's right around then that the cops show up to arrest all parties, including Mike Cassidy and Teddy. Lorraine turned everybody in. The Hulk beats a hasty retreat, leaving Cassidy with a lot of questions to answer, a lot of gel time ahead of him, and leaving Jack McGee with the oddest feeling that this was all more than just a case of mistaken identity. After recovering from his latest transformation into the Incredible Hulk, David Bruce Banner, as always, moves on to his next destination. The End you know, the lady who really doesn't have that much useful information for McGee, uh, Banner's neighbor, she asks him if it's true what his paper ran about the $6 million man. McGee just says, if we printed it, it's true. So I think it was probably an op-ed comparing Bill Bixby's mustache at the beginning of this episode to the really unfortunate one that Lee Majors grew halfway through the run of the $6 million man, but I really have no data to back that up, so file it under conjecture. Seriously, though, that was a really odd reference to throw in, a reference to a show that had been off the air for almost two years at this point on a rival network. 
But let's back that up. Does that place Steve Austin in the 1970s Marvel TV version of the cinematic universe? Or just the show, The Six Million Dollar Man? There is a whole can of worms waiting to be opened up there. We'll save that for another time. You pretty much forget that can of worms immediately in the next scene, because when Banner's door opens, just as McGee is about to knock, there's no music build-up, no nothing, just a hard cut to black, and holy cow, that is one of the best stay-tuned, we'll-be-right-back moments in the history of this series. This is the only time that these two meet after the pilot face-to-face, and for a moment there's no fudging on it. There have been a lot of close calls. It's kind of a running gag in this series. But just for a moment, until Banner plays the Mike Cassidy wild card, there is no avoiding the realization. It's kind of neat that this moment is allowed to play out with no music or any other distractions going on, because it's kind of electric. And I'm honestly kind of surprised that this episode wasn't saved for February, where it at least would have been a sweeps month. But, but, hold that thought. That might have been a really bad idea. Remember that TV in February 1980 was ruled by the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. This was at a time in broadcast history when putting any other show up against the Olympics was a pretty good way of making sure that nobody watched your show. Especially when you had stuff like the U.S. men's hockey team emerging victorious over a Soviet team that had much better odds of winning. As popular as The Incredible Hulk was, even in its third season, he was not going to beat that if CBS had put this up against the ABC Olympic coverage. CBS did schedule new episodes of The Hulk against the Olympics, but they didn't come out of that with a ratings win. So if you're wondering why any of these shows were airing new episodes in early January, that's why. I went and checked and found that NBC ran two new Buck Rogers episodes up against the Olympics before taking it off the schedule until late March at which point the 1980 Winter Olympics had come to an end. The writers of this episode were also the show's executive story consultants, and the director was also the show's director of photography. Co-writer Karen Harris had been writing episodes of The Incredible Hulk since its first season in 1978, and was about to become a producer on the show for the remainder of its third season and part of its fourth season. She went on to write episodes of Simon and Simon, Knight Rider, Street Hawk, Renegade, Highlander the Series, and Highlander the Raven, of which she was also a producer. The other writer credited was Jill Sherman Donner, whose work we've discussed in previous retrograms, and who was also about to become one of the producers of The Incredible Hulk. We talked about her work previously when we discussed the early 80s time travel series Voyagers. Director John McPherson directed seven episodes of The Incredible Hulk, and Broken Image was number four, right in the middle of his Hulk directing career. He would go on to do much more directing in the 1990s on shows such as Alien Nation, Swamp Thing, The Untouchables, Strange Luck, Babylon 5, and Seven Days, but he was much better known in the business as a director of photography, a role he held on Kojak, Voyagers, St. Elsewhere, The Powers of Matthew Starr, the original V miniseries, and Amazing Stories, before becoming DP on the big screen for movies such as Short Circuit 2, Jaws the Revenge, Batteries Not Included, and Fletch Lives. We lost John McPherson in 2007. This really isn't the deepest of Incredible Hulk stories. There's not a lot to say about the human condition, and the whole mistaken identity gag is almost played for laughs. Some of Joe Harnell's music cues, in fact, are almost making this episode out to be a comedy early on. If there really is any humor in here, it comes from the fact that we know, 
Unlike this episode's endless parade of seemingly tough guys, everybody is really messing with the wrong guy, and the Hulk is about to smash. Flash Gordon, Season 1, Episode 16, Ming's Last Battle, aired on the morning of Saturday, January 5th, 1980, on NBC. The story so far. Flash Gordon, Dale Arden, and Dr. Hans Zarkov are ordinary Earth people thrust into an extraordinary situation. Trying to stop a series of attacks on Earth, they venture to the alien planet Mongo, drawing the unwelcome attention of Mongo's ruler, Ming the Merciless, a tyrant who tries to maintain total control over that part of the universe. And now he has his eyes set on conquering Earth. Fortunately for Flash and friends, not everyone wants to be under Ming's thumb, and so they have allies, Prince Baron of the jungle world of Arborea, Vulton, the leader of the Hawkmen, and King Thun, ruler of the Lion People. With the help of these allies and others who are well acquainted with Ming and his menacing methods, Flash and friends fight to keep Earth from falling into Ming's grasp. Ming's Last Battle Sky City, home of Vulton, King of the Hawkmen, is once again open for business, and Vulton is back in his rightful place on the throne. Also present are some of Vulton's allies in the fight against Ming, Prince Baron of Arborea, Thun, King of the Lion People, and Dr. Hans Zarkov. Zarkov is working on boosting Sky City's shields to withstand the counterattack that will almost surely happen when Voltan pilots his entire city right over to the capital of Mongo and starts opening fire on Ming's palace. Everyone else waits, a bit worried, for any word from Flash. He's gone incommunicado. Actually, it's even worse than that. In the previous episode, Ming himself froze Flash in something between a block of ice and suspended animation and Ming is keeping Flash in that state. You know, it's just what evil guys do. They have their arch-enemies frozen, and keep those frozen enemies around to remember the good times. But there's more to it than that. Ming is holding the captive Flash hostage as a bargaining chip. Ming still wants Dale Arden to marry him, and if she doesn't, Flash gets it. Dale gives up. She'll marry Ming. Doesn't even sound like she's going to hold out for a prenup. Elsewhere in Mingo City, Captain Erzine, Ming's chief of security, spots Sky City approaching. What do you mean, Sky City approaching? Captain Erzine orders Ming's robot army into action because heavily armed fortresses tend not to be bringing wedding gifts. Ming's robot army, striking from a mobile command center, starts firing before Sky City even has a chance to get a single shot off. Zarkov's shields fail under the barrage, and Sky City starts taking a pounding. During all of this mayhem, Ming's daughter, the Princess Aura, frees Flash from captivity and offers to get him out of Mingo City undetected so he can join the fight. In fact, Flash already has some ideas. He calls in a favor from Mongo's own fish people. The Hawkmen mount a valiant defense of Sky City, and it helps quite a bit when the Queen of Phrygia shows up with her own fleet. The previously warring kingdoms of Mongo are finally joining together for the greater good. In the palace, Dale has a moment with Captain Erzine and tells him a story of a time on Earth when the phrase, I was only following orders, was used as an excuse for doing horrible things. 
and it wasn't enough of an excuse. When will the good captain stand up against Ming? Erzine lets his guard down momentarily and says that he wouldn't live long if he stood up against Ming alone. Dale points out that if he had the guts to stand up, he wouldn't be alone. But if Erzine is even beginning to think about this, he's not giving any hint that he is. The big day is here, but Dale doesn't feel like celebrating. Ming has her escorted out to the Great Hall by his guards to stand before... Well, in Mingo City, I guess a hooded man could be an executioner, or he could be officiating at the wedding. On this planet, the mood is pretty much the same. But hey, someone in the assembled crowd announces that he has just cause or impediment why these two should not be joined in unholy matrimony. It's Flash. Guess Ming didn't check to see if his prize catch was still in the suspended animation tank before the ceremony. You know how wedding days are. Somebody always misses one little detail. Flash proclaims that Ming's day is done. It's time for the Emperor to leave the throne. Even Captain Erzine says that forces of the other kingdoms of Mongo are overwhelming Ming's robot army. The fight is on, the long-awaited duel between Flash and Ming. Ming's flaming sword makes pretty quick work of Flash's, well, non-flaming sword, but Flash finally disarms his opponent and pushes him off of a ledge from a high tower, and Ming's head falls off when he hits the ground. Gears and other parts pour out of his neck. Now, wait a minute. Ming the Merciless was a robot all along? Not quite. This one was a decoy. The real flesh and blood Ming had hopped into his spaceship to make his escape, and he promises Flash that they will meet again. Well, there's suddenly a bit of a power vacuum. Not to worry. Prince Baron decrees that he is now the regent of Mongo and orders all hostilities to cease. There's a lot to do to bring peace and prosperity back to Mongo, and there's no time like the present to start. As for Flash, Dale, and Dr. Hans Zarkov, they're still stranded on Mongo, but at least now they're among friends. The end. Question mark. Launched a year before the Dino De Laurentiis live-action film that both helped and hindered it, Filmation's Flash Gordon cartoon can at least be lauded for trying to stick closely to the original story as devised by Alex Raymond, at least during its first season. Trying may be the operative word there, since the strict guidelines for children's programming at the time limited the amount of on-screen conflict and necessitated some other story alterations, not the least of which was Ming suddenly having an army of robots. Because you can violently dispatch robots in animation, even if they look a little bit like people. Just say that they're robots. The 1980 live-action movie, which deviated even more from Raymond's original stories, was a bit of a help to the animated shows. The reruns were suddenly in demand, and hey, there were already action figures. So the cartoon isn't cashing in on the movie. It actually came before it, and it was intended to cash in on Star Wars mania, kind of the same way that Battle of the Planets was. The second season took a long time to be written and produced and just wasn't received as well as the first as it tried to be more overtly kid-friendly and maybe toy-maker-friendly. I spotted a really interesting name among the storyboard artists working at Filmation on Flash Gordon, John Chris Felusi, later of the Mighty Mouse Revival and the creator of Ren and Stimpy in the early 1990s at Nickelodeon. Now, I have some questions. <laughs> what audience was this Saturday morning cartoon made for? There's a brief establishing shot where we see, I guess, Ming's handmaidens frolicking about and preparing Dale for the wedding. Some of this animation reminded me more of something by Ralph Bakshi 
than something by filmation. There's a languid pan left to right depicting various scantily clad ladies, both human and otherwise, and it all winds up with this shot starting at Dale's feet and then panning up, sort of like the animation director wants us checking her out from head to toe. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seemed a bit more lurid than I would have expected from his Saturday morning cartoon in 1979. Almost, but not quite on the same level as the 1980 live-action movie itself. Now, am I just forgetting the degree to which the feel-good decade was sexualizing even kids' shows? And how about the two times right at the end of the show where Dale just plants an almighty kiss on Flash? That is no friendly little kiss. That is a really, really friendly big kiss. Almost a get-a-room kiss. The format is very much like that of Jason of Star Command, which Filmation had produced in live action earlier in the 70s. As far as the recaps, the title cards, and the general storytelling style, including the announcer at the beginning and end of each episode. The spectacle, on the other hand, is pretty amazing by 1979 standards. This was peak Filmation, a step above most of Filmation's very simplistic animated output. Now, in many respects, a lot of it is very much like the rest of Filmation's budget-conscious, move-everything-as-little-as-you-can-possibly-get-away-with animation style. But the Art Deco background plates and a number of other Art Deco-inspired designs really stuck out. And just about anything, any scene with Ming in the scene, he really seems to be much more detailed, almost like he's rotoscoped. The same goes for those really friendly kisses I mentioned earlier. They look like they were rotoscoped over live-action footage. The closest that live-action TV could get to this at the time would have been Battlestar Galactica or Buck Rogers, each of which were restricted to a library of optical shots from their respective pilots, edited together with occasional new footage or just edited together in new ways to suggest new battles. Prior to the advent of CGI or video effects, this is a really good example of why animated science fiction still had quite a foothold on the TV schedule. It could still outdo what shows relying on a fixed library of miniature model photography could afford to pull off. Sadly, in the end, what this animated series can best be remembered for is being forgotten. Just a year later, when Flash Gordon arrived in a new and dazzlingly colorful form on the big screen. Now, that being said, it's quite an educational cartoon. I think there is something we can all take away from Dale Arden reminding Captain Urzine of the whole I was only following orders thing, not justifying the horrible acts that Captain Urzine is at the very least enabling if he is not carrying out those orders himself and just passing them on to the robot army. Kind of wonder if that message would be in an animated show today. Now, there's one last bit of trivia. This iteration of Flash Gordon can also be remembered for having its own three-and-three-quarter-inch action figure line, which, ironically, was on the market up against Mego's line of three-and-three-quarter-inch Buck Rogers action figures, so you really could have Buck and Flash team up against the bad guys. Now, I know you're probably just thinking, huh, jeez, here goes Earl about action figures again. And you're not wrong, but there is some significance to this. The Flash Gordon action figure line was released by Mattel, which helped to put into place a relationship between Mattel and Filmation that would bear fruit in the 1980s, when that partnership finally stuck the landing on the whole toy line supported by an animated show supported by a toy line thing in the land of Eternia, somewhere just down the block from Castle Grayskull. 
Doctor Who, Season 17, Episode 19, The Horns of Nyman, Part 3, aired Saturday evening, January 5, 1980, on BBC One in the UK. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet, Gallifrey, and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekicks in the TARDIS are Romana, a young time lady from Gallifrey, and K-9 Mark II, the Doctor's own rebuilt version of his faithful robot dog. In the first two episodes, the TARDIS was shut down for repairs when it collided with a broken-down space freighter carrying an unlikely cargo. A group of young people and a hold full of highly radioactive hymatucite crystals from the planet Aneth, to be delivered as a tribute to a creature called the Nyman on the planet Skonos, fulfilling a contract between the two planets that dates back generations, a contract that has kept the planet Aneth enslaved. The Doctor, Romana, and K-9 exchange insurance information and help to effect repairs, but at the first opportunity, the sole surviving crew member of the freighter ditches the TARDIS, leaves the Doctor to his fate, and resumes course for Skonos with Romana aboard as an extra prize. But the repairs have cost him two of the crystals, which were the real cargo to be delivered to the Nymon. On Skonos, Romana and the hapless youths from Aneth are banished through some kind of energy gate, on the other side of which is the maze of the Nymon. And for falsifying his story about what happened to delay the arrival of his ship, that surviving crew member from the freighter is also banished as well, and becomes the Nymon's first victim of the day. The Horns of Nymon, Part 3 the freighter crew member is toast, but the doctor appears complete with a piece of red cloth, taunting the Nymon and drawing him away from his prey. Romana grabs the fallen man's weapon and blasts the Nymon's equipment, telling the terrified kids from Aneth to run for their lives. But only Tika and Seth, a nervous boy who Tika believes is a prince sent to free Aneth from the grip of the Nymon, actually run. The rest stand stock still in terror, holding the crystals. So... The Nyman still has the crystals, and most of the kids from Aneth, and the Doctor has Romana, Seth, and Tika, and he's not dead, so there is that. But the layout of the maze keeps changing, and even the Doctor is a little bit lost. But he is adamant about one thing. While Seth may be fixated on finding the way out of the maze, the Doctor is more interested in finding the center of the maze. That'll be the heart of the Nyman's operation, which really looks like it's a thing that needs to be stopped. In the power room, the nervous kids from Aneth, who are probably wishing they had run when Romana told them to, hand over the crystals. The Nymon announces that even with two of the crystals missing, his systems have now achieved operational power levels, all part of what it keeps referring to as the Great Journey of Life. It then lowers its bull-like head, pointing its horns at the kids, and starts blasting them. Man, remember when we had the option of running away when someone said run? Those were the good old days. Meanwhile, in the center of the complex, the doctor comes a-calling. There's a lot of equipment in here requiring a lot of energy. The doctor thinks it's a kind of transmat, a matter transmitter, but he needs K-9's help to sabotage it, so he blows his dog whistle. In the great hall on Skanos, Soldit is perplexed by the TARDIS, and he and his guards are even more confused when K-9 emerges from the TARDIS. When the guards fire on K-9, he defends himself, but he is soon overpowered. So much for the doctor's help. 
The chief of Soldid's guard pauses for a moment. Hey, boss, have you ever wondered why the Naiman is supposedly helping build us up into an all-conquering galactic superpower? What's in it for them? Soldid brushes this question off. He doesn't really know the answer, but he's sure he's outthought the Naiman and can make this work in Skano's favor. Back in the maze, the Naiman is coming, lumbering like a bull-headed alien through a china shop. The doctor and his friends hide, watching as the Naiman starts powering up all of his equipment. A large metallic egg-like pod appears on the transmat pad. The doctor and Romana watch as the Naiman opens the door on the pod, and from the pod emerges another pair of Naiman. So these guys aren't some singular beast. There is not one sole survivor. It's an entire species. And they're talking about something called the Great Migration. So what are the odds that there are a bunch more of them? It's more like an invasion. The second great Skanan empire that Soldid keeps praising might originate from Skanos, but Soldid and his people won't survive to see it. It'll be a plague of Naimon spreading out across the universe. In the heart of the maze, the three Naimon have wandered off, and the doctor has set Romana onto the task of analyzing the Naimon's transmat pod. But in tinkering with the power control systems, the doctor accidentally activates the transmat. He's just sent Romana to the Naimon's home planet. Worse yet, Soldid has arrived to seek an audience with the Naimon, and when he sees the doctor, he opens fire, blasting the control apparatus that could bring Romana back. To be continued. Doctor Who was kind of limping into the 1980s here at the end of a season that started out strong and ended early. This was Graham Williams' final season as the producer overseeing and guiding the show, and he had the best of intentions. The 1979 season opener started with the Daleks, and a newly regenerated Romana, now played by Lala Ward, and then the second four-part story was a modern-day time-bending epic written in crisis mode by Williams and none other than Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame to replace another set of scripts that had fallen through at a late stage. From there, however, things went downhill. Adams' attention was divided as the surprise success of the Hitchhiker's Guide on BBC Radio meant that he was being pulled in two directions at once, and perhaps as a result of this pressure, Adams resorted to a lot more whimsy in his rewrites, something which Tom Baker, the show's star, picked up on and took as a cue to play everything for laughs. Worse yet, Adams' final contribution before bowing out as the show's script editor was to be a six-part story called Shada, which was mostly completed and required just a little more studio filming to be finished, but a strike of studio workers brought it all to a screeching halt. The BBC, wanting to leave the studio workers' union with a black eye, cancelled the final studio sessions for Shada, even though they actually could have finished it. Instead, they chose to leave it unfinished and blamed the union for that in public. Shada was finally finished with animation in 2018, leaving the light-hearted and somewhat silly four-parter The Horns of Naimon to serve as season 17's unintentional finale. Now, before you rake Williams or Adams or anyone else over the coals for how goofy this particular four-part story is, remember that it was intended to air over the holidays. Part 1 aired three days before Christmas 1979. Now think of most of the Doctor Who Christmas and holiday specials since then in the modern series. They tend to feature one-off guest stars and one-off stories unconnected to ongoing storylines. You wind up with Kylie Minogue as a space waitress, or the Doctor Who version of The Christmas Carol with flying sharks, and so on. This was kind of the 1979 version of that. 
Graham Crowden's take on his character is kind of a dead giveaway to this. He's very over-the-top, chewing through the scenery and the fourth wall alike, which a UK audience would expect from a traditional Christmas pantomime. The same goes for Tom Baker giving K-9 CPR in part one of the story, and again, directing dialogue straight down the barrel of the camera numerous times. Now, I like how the room in the Nymon's maze, where the crystals are handed in, has this very ordinary rack full of perfectly human-made rack-mount electrical equipment in it, including one meter that is clearly showing us how many milliamps the crystals are generating. It's funny how in the budget-addled days of 1960s and 70s Doctor Who, every alien race in the universe tends to have this very recognizable equipment, even if their hands or appendages aren't suited to it, kind of like Daleks having control panels full of throw switches, which is a thing that did happen. How does that work with their sucker cups? Fortunately, the Nymon are pretty much humanoid, so it's a bit less of a stretch, and fortunately the Nymon measure electricity in amps, so they were able to get their gear for a bargain from the BBC prop department. I guess this means the Nymon can handle screwdrivers to install the equipment in the racks, you know, maybe it doesn't pay to overthink it too much. This is why sci-fi is sometimes better off with a whole wall of blinky lights, because, man, who knows what that's all about? Those could mean anything. A lot of Doctor Who fandom regards the Horns of Nymon in its entirety as one of the show's low points, but really, it's a lot of fun if you kind of switch off your brain and sort of half-watch it while polishing off the last of the eggnog. There's a little exchange of dialogue between Tika and Seth that really exemplifies this. She asks him what the Nymon is doing while they're hiding and watching the Nymon, and he responds, I don't know, to which she then replies, Why don't you know? Which may be the first time someone has asked that question in the first 17 years of Doctor Who. One of the things I do to prepare for a retrogram week that contains a Doctor Who story is to rewatch the whole story, not just the particular episode that I'm going to talk about in the podcast, because it's necessary for recapping the previous episodes and because I'm gradually going through the logbook episode guides, rewriting the Doctor Who entries in an episodic format rather than lumping an entire four or six or seven part show into a single entry. Man, this one little podcast is a lot of work, but the Doctor Who rewrites in the episode guide section of the site are long overdue anyway, and if I'm rewatching them anyway, there's no better time. But rewatching stuff means noticing things that I hadn't noticed before, and I picked up on something here that, despite the story being 40 years old, I don't think I had noticed before. And it may be a stretch, I may be wrong. But there are things going on in 2019 that weren't quite as foregrounded as they were the last time I rewatched The Horns of Nymon. Once we get to Part 4, which aired a week later, we learn that the planet that Romana has been sent to isn't even really the home planet of the Nymon. It's not where that species evolved. It's just the last planet that the Nymon invaded and sucked dry. This is a thing they do. There is even a dialogue reference to them being a plague of locusts. So does this seemingly inoffensive, light-hearted little story have an anti-immigration angle? Or could it be read that way at the very least? Now, I know that's quite a reach, but it's something that occurred to me watching all four episodes in 2019. The language used to describe the Nyman as locusts, or as drain on resources, or invaders. This is the same language we keep hearing now to try to justify building a wall, or from a more appropriate British perspective, trying to justify Brexit. 
And really, it's just that kind of nebulous language. They're invading. They're like locusts. That language lends itself to being interpreted to suit almost any occasion. It reminds me a little bit of political campaigns playing popular songs to warm up the crowd. In some cases, the people who wrote the song would never approve of who is using them. But because they wrote a song that's non-specific enough while also being vaguely about changing things for the better, those songs get played, at least until the lawyers swoop in. The writer of this story, Anthony Reed, has offered some clarification over the years that what it's really about is a retelling of Theseus, Seth, leaving his home, Athens, Aneth, so he can enter the labyrinth to defeat the Minotaur, the Nymon. Again, this was almost a throwaway story since it would be airing over two major holidays, Christmas and the New Year of a new decade. So if borrowing from well-known Greek mythology made it easier for an audience that was only half paying attention anyway to follow the story, well, that was probably a wise move. So really, this is Doctor Who's version of Clash of the Titans without the cool robot owl. And maybe, hopefully, hopefully, not some sort of anti-immigration screed. Everything in this first week of 1980 really seemed awfully familiar. We had riffs on Bram Stoker and Greek mythology, populated with modern-day versions of space heroes dating back to the 1930s. Had we just hit the wall at the end of the 70s and run out of ideas? Probably not. Again, right around the holidays, you probably want light-hearted shows that are also light on major story developments, which were few and far between anyway, as serialized storytelling made for binge-watching later in primetime sci-fi were just not happening yet in the U.S. Everything had to be ready to become part of a syndication package that wouldn't necessarily air in the same order as the original broadcast. The one really serialized story here is the Flash Gordon cartoon, which again plays to the character's roots. Now, the whole modernized Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers angle may have been part of a larger trend of remixing old favorites with new technology. We had never been able to tell the story of either character with this level of visual pizzazz before, and in a way, if you zoom out to a bigger picture of popular culture at the turn of the decade, we were entering the heyday of new wave music, which often wasn't that new. It was just familiar rhythms and sometimes familiar songs channeled and filtered through new technology capable of making new sounds. Some really notable new wave hits, Tainted Love, Putting on the Ritz, Betty Davis Eyes, Red Red Wine, Devo's version of Working in the Coal Mine, these were all older songs, sometimes quite old, now with the added novelty of being played on synthesizers instead of a band playing acoustic or electric instruments. Video may have been in the process of killing the radio star, but it was employing some pretty old weapons to do the deed. By that same cultural token, Glenn A. Larson's Buck Rogers was a disco-era remix of an old favorite, and during this particular week, Buck Rogers was remixing Dracula. That's okay, just a few weeks earlier in November 1979, when Gary Coleman guest-starred on Buck Rogers for the first time, his episode was basically a remix of The Ransom of Red Chief. The Incredible Hulk was kind of, sort of, riffing on the Prisoner of Zenda. Doctor Who's Outer Space Minotaurs were a remix, too. Flash Gordon was being animated with modern techniques, but it at least stayed faithful to its Art Deco lineage. 
Was there anything new under the sun in this first week of 1980? Maybe not, but that casts some doubt on a criticism that's often leveled in 2019, where it seems like everything is a reboot, or at least some critics would have us believe that. The truth is, Hollywood has always been happy to do a little bit of recycling, and I don't mean the environmentally conscious kind. But in 1980, the average TV season was also at least 20 episodes. Buck Rogers filmed 21 episodes in its first season, two of which, the series premiere and the season finale, were two-hour movies. The Incredible Hulk's 1979-80 season gave us 23 hour-long episodes. One of the whole reasons that there is an entire website devoted to TV tropes these days is that under the crushing pressure of time and having to keep shows fed and keep production on schedule, sometimes those shows were fed some leftovers. It wasn't a practice exclusive to sci-fi or fantasy shows either. And in defense of the writers of these shows, everyone. Sooner or later, runs into a story at some point in their lives that makes them want to tell their own take on that same basic plot and maybe improve it a little. Let's face it; that's why fan fiction exists. So the next time you hear someone complaining that a season of their favorite show isn't as long as a season of a TV show used to be, ask yourself or ask them if they were okay with some of those longer seasons being taken up by what seemed like. Retellings of existing stories, rather than something a bit more mission critical, because if you had a show cranking out nearly two dozen episodes per year, yes, you were going to run into space vampires and space minotaurs, modern-day prisoner of Zenda, and another retelling of Flash Gordon. Which would we rather have: longer seasons with occasional filler, or shorter seasons that are all killer and no filler? The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at BetterWithMusic.com and at FreeMusicArchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross and DZ, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, join them in helping out with Retrogram's great journey of life. Every little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Kevin and Darwin and Javier and sign up as a patron at Patreon.com/slash/TheLogbook. You can also support the site by buying T-shirts, mugs, shower curtains. Yes, shower curtains. And other goodies from our store at redbubble.com/people/thelogbook, including brand new designs to show your love for Retrogram. Or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com/store from places like Amazon and eBay. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery or want to be ready for the new Picard series debuting in 2020, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.